0: Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning as we worship our God together. On the back of your bulletins are the announcements. I think most are pretty much self-explanatory. I I would make mention for you ladies, to save the date, you see there in your bulletins, there is the annual ladies' conference at Grace Baptist Church there in Canton. It's October 20 and 21. Pastor Jones, and I don't know how he pronounces that last name, Zakiya, I they refer to him as Pastor Jones, believe it or not. He is from the Grace Baptist Church in Mebbin, North Carolina. He will be the speaker at the Ladies' Conference. So they sent us a notice and ask you to save the date, October 20 and 21, the annual Ladies' Retreat. Uh, we will be gathering around the Lord's Table this afternoon, so keep that in mind as you prepare your hearts for that service as well. Well, now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God. You know the story of Job, and you know how at the end of that book, Job is given a clear sight of who God is. In the midst of all that he's gone through, and in the midst of all the calamity, and Heartbreak that he's experienced at the very end, he does see who God is. And we read in Job 42, verses 1 and 2 Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job recognized that God is sovereign and he has a plan and a purpose. And no one can stay his hand. And that's the very God that we've gathered to worship this morning. Would you prepare your hearts to meet with that God and pray that God would come and make a sight of him very clear to us this morning. Prepare your hearts for worship. Inside your bulletin is the call to worship from the 33rd Psalm. The psalmist here reminds his hearers that God is the one who creates and God is the one who rules over all things and that a proper response to that is that we would fear him. And then in this portion of the psalm, he reminds us that we are a blessed people if we know him. Will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading. By the words of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For when he spoke and hit the sun, he commanded and has served the heavens. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation.
1: Blessed is the
0: the people whom he has chosen are to be heard. Well now let us continue our worship of God in the singing of number thirty three in the hymns of grace. Number thirty three in the hymns of grace, our sovereign God if I have your email address, I sent you a copy of this hymn. I'm delighted to hear that some listen to it and hopefully have an idea of how it goes. But I'll have Rachel play through it once and then we will sing it together, Our Sovereign God.
2: Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you with praise and adoration again this morning. Because although our sins were many and grievous, and you knew everything we ever did, yet by your great mercy, our Lord Jesus atoned for them all by his death on the cross. He gave us living water, springing up to eternal life. So we pray in this service that we would truly know your presence and that we would be such people as you are seeking to worship you, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Father, as your words proclaim this hour, we pray that you would use it to open our spiritual eyes, open our eyes to see the vileness of our sin and the beauty of Christ, open our eyes to see the fields are white unto harvest for lost souls. And may we be zealous for the gospel and the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You
1: may be seated.
0: Now take your hymns of grace. I mean, Trinity. Take your Trinity hymn books. 256. 256. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. 256 in the Trinity.
2: consecutive reading through the New Testament today is from John chapter 4, the gospel of John chapter 4, and we'll be reading just down to verse 38. And while there is much to be said, I will be uh, reading it without comment. Hear now the word of the living and true God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea Judea, and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have ever done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life For life. eternal." so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor.
0: Again this morning as we seek our God together in prayer, we especially want to remember the Grace Baptist Church in Islamabad, Pakistan. This past Wednesday we watched a video and saw how this little church there in Islamabad was greatly used in the time of need in the sin providence of Pakistan. There was great flooding that took place last year. It rained for Several months. And if you could imagine, if you lived in mud houses and it rained for several months, the devastation that came, not only on their houses, but upon the church building. And, and so in the video, we, we saw how uh, by the intercession of, of uh, the Grace Baptist Church, they were able to rebuild their homes. They've rebuilt their building. They're still in the process of doing some of that work. And it was just good to see how God was using that faithful small ministry there in Pakistan to show benevolence to the others that in that they might find Christ. And so we do want to pray for them even this morning. Let's seek our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, again, we, we thank you for the Word of God and even the reminder this morning in hearing your word read to us of the importance of worshiping you as you have directed us to worship you. And therefore, we pray that our worship would be marked by spirit and truth, that, Father, as we gather together as a community of believers, that our hearts are so warm that we delight in praising you, and and worshiping You this morning. Father, we pray that our worship has not just been lip service, but has truly been an expression of our love and devotion and passion for You. Father, we pray that it would mark by truth that the Word of God would be that which directs our worship. Not how we feel or what we think, but by truth, Your Word, directing us to worship you so that our worship would be well-pleasing in your sight. And so help us as we continue. Draw near to us. By your Spirit, make your presence known among us this morning as we hear your word. Father, we pray for the church there in Pakistan. We pray for the Grace Baptist Church in Islamabad. And, And knowing something of their history, How thankful we are for their faithfulness and no doubt many challenges and difficulties as they seek to live godly in in a country that is so opposed to you. We thank you for the opportunity that they've had to be a storehouse in helping the believers and others there in the providence of, of sin there in Pakistan. It was just a delight to hear how you've been pleased to use them to see houses rebuild and even church buildings rebuilt so that people might gather to worship you. We pray your blessing to continue on that church. Father, we pray for Pastor Danielle that he'll be a faithful minister of the gospel and that you will continue to use him and the people of God not only by these acts of benevolence but also the opportunities they have of hosting pastors' conferences, in in getting out good literature, Father. We just thank you for their self-denying work for the advancement of your kingdom there in Pakistan. And Father, this morning we would pray that you would be with Micah as he comes to open the Word of God. We pray that you would draw near to us, give him help, and may you come by your Spirit and give an increase that only You can give for Your glory and honor. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before Micah comes to open the Word of God, take your Trinity hymn books, turning to number 37. Number 37 in the Trinity hymn book, God is our refuge and our strength. Number 37.
3: What a fitting song to sing coming into the subject that we're going to consider today together. If you've been here with us these past few months, you know that we've been somewhat slowly making our way through the attributes of God. Uh, taking each attribute as it comes to us and especially focusing on what are called the incommunicable attributes of as we gaze at the beauty of the Lord together, we've been considering all the ways in which God is not like us. You know, we live in a culture where people want God to be very small. We live in a culture where people want God to be relatable. We live in a culture where people want to strip God of His transcendence. But I hope that you found in this series that the being of God is really mystifying. The being of God being incomprehensible is so far above anything that we could even pretend to get our arms around that really it just makes us stand back and be in awe. And I hope that even as we consider an attribute that might be more familiar to us today, that when we consider all that that attribute means... That will be our uh, reaction and worship to our Lord this morning. Um, Would you start out in Romans chapter 1 with me this morning? And today, there isn't one text that I thought expressed everything that needed to be expressed about this particular doctrine. So we're going to be traversing the Scriptures a little bit together, but I hope that through that we can just get a small taste of what Scripture has has to offer us Uh, in relation to God's omnipotence. That's the title of this sermon. Behold our God, Omnipotent. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So Paul is talking about the inherent knowledge that creatures have of the being of their creator. His existence is self-evident to them. But he says not only is his uh, his existence self-evident to them, there are certain things about him that are self-evident to his creatures. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely or specifically... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So what Paul is saying here is that there's a couple of things that each and every one, even if they haven't believed upon Jesus Christ, can know about their God. He's saying you can know his eternal power and his divine nature. Those are two attributes that are absolutely clear to all creatures. How can we know his eternal power? Look at the existence of all things. The existence beckons us to come to the creator. You can't look at creation and specifically the vastness and the beauty and the intricacy and the detail of your creation and walk of his creation and walk away Not knowing that God exists or thinking that he is weak. Paul says that this is part of the absolutely foundational level knowledge of God that every rational creature has that can look into the heavens. And Paul goes on to talk about that in Romans chapter 2. Even the Gentiles who don't have the law of God know something about him just by virtue of of being his creatures. One of those things that they know about him is his power. So, you'd think that because this attribute is self-evident, as we said, that it would be relatively easy to grasp. You'd think that because this attribute is part of the foundational knowledge of God that all creatures have, just by virtue of being creatures, that it would be something that we'd all agree upon what it means. But, just like most other things in church history... (laughs) This is not something that everyone has agreed about. about. And I think this is illustrated by something that happened to me about nine years ago. About nine years ago, I was sitting in a Bible doctrine class at Moody Bible Institute, and I had a really, really good professor who would teach the class essentially by posing a series of questions to us and sort of stirring the pot and making us argue with each other. but one of the one of the questions that he posed brought up this question that has to do with God's omnipotence. And the question was is God able not to sin or is he not able to sin? Now just think about that for a second. Is God not able to sin or is he able not to sin? Is is sinning something that God cannot do? Is there some things that God absolutely cannot do? Or is he just able to not do that which he chooses to not do? I know that's kind of a confusing way of putting it. But my, my answer to this question sparked a lot of pushback from people that were uncomfortable with it. I was like, well, you know, there, there are some things that Scripture says that God cannot do. Scripture tells us that God cannot lie. He says that he cannot have regret. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Being himself truth, he cannot utter what is untrue. And there are other things that by simple reasoning from the scriptures, you would assume that God cannot do. God cannot cause himself to not exist. Like there's this category of things that God cannot do by virtue of his being God. And that's what I was in a much less developed way trying to, trying to say in that classroom nine years ago. But there was, a, there was a girl in the class, and I remember this conversation, who was absolutely scandalized by the idea that God would not be able to do some things. Because in her mind, she's thinking God is omnipotent which is what I'm preaching about today, so you you know that I agree with her. God is omnipotent. But she's saying if God's omnipotent, then how is it that there are some things he cannot do? Doesn't that pose a contradiction? Because it's not just other believers that will argue about this kind of thing. It's also atheists that will bring you this question. And they'll bring it as a defeater. They'll say, well... You know, can God cause himself to not exist? Or can God sin? Or can God lie? Or can God make a square circle? Or something like that. And a lot of Christians don't know how to answer that question because because they think that omnipotence in their minds entails that there are certain things that God cannot do. But the reason I wanted to give this illustration to start out is because through that sort of conflict and difficulty, it gives us a couple of questions that are helpful in setting the guardrails for what Scripture means by God's omnipotence. It's sort of like a prism that you can see God's omnipotence more clearly when you really consider that question. But we're not there yet. Um, At first, I just want to take a little bit of a survey of the Scriptures together to discover what the Bible says about God's omnipotence. We already said from Romans chapter 1 that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. So this is something that all creation, uh, creation understands about God. But have you ever noticed God's power revealed in the names of God in Scripture? Scripture gives a host of different names to God and an astounding number of them have to do with his power. El Shaddai, God Almighty, in Genesis 17.1 and Genesis 35.11, God is revealing Himself as the covenant God of Abraham and Jacob, and He's telling Abraham, Sarah, even though you're both really old, is going to have a son. But He comes to him, ensuring him of His promises, and He says, I am, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. So in that context... God's dealing with Abraham. He reveals his power, his omnipotence, almighty, in the context of his relationship with Abraham, saying, I'm able to do what I promised you I would do. And he says the same thing in the same type of context with Jacob. It's two different times that word is used in the book of Genesis. Just as sort of a flyover, Deuteronomy 7.21, is called the great and terrible God implication there is that you should fear him because he's able to do whatever he wants because he rules over all things. Isaiah 124, he's called the mighty one of Israel. Jeremiah thirty two eighteen. he's called Yahweh of hosts. And if you're not clear on what Yahweh of hosts means, it means that he commands innumerable armies of angels and beckons them to do his will. Job 9.4 and 36.5, Job calls him mighty in strength. Psalm 24.8, he's called strong and mighty. In the New Testament, we see in 1 Timothy 1.17 that he's the great king. Not only does he have authority like a great king to, to where he has the right to do whatever he wants, he is the greatest king that not only does he have the authority to do whatever he wants, he actually can do whatever he wants because he has the power to match it. Revelation 1:8 48 8, and 11:17 call him the Lord Almighty. So God reveals his power to us in his names in scripture. Not only in his names though, look at his works of creation that we've already spoken about. Isaiah 40 verse 26. Turn there with me actually. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 26. Isaiah chapter 40 verses actually we're going to do 25 and 26. Remember, this is the trial of the false gods where God is exalting himself against any idol or any demon that would try to take his place. Isaiah 40 verse 25, "To whom then will you liken me that I should be or to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him?" says the Holy One. What does the Holy One mean? Transcendent, exalted above this world. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and see who created these. So there's his creative power. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. Not one of them is missing. So Isaiah, in this context, of challenging the false gods that Israel has taken said you want to know how you want to know how you can know that our God is the all-powerful God who will crush all of these idols underneath his feet look at the fact that he's the creator of all things look at existence itself look at the heavens it will declare to you the glory of God as Paul says or as Psalm chapter 19 says not only in creation though look at his works of providence because sometimes I think we think about God sort of in a deistic way the deists had a God who sort of created the world by winding up a clock and letting it go but that's not the biblical portrait of God's activity and providence in the world God declares his power by his works of providence in which he upholds all things turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 Hebrews chapter 1. It's talking about the the coming of Christ, the coming of the son into the world and the dawning of a new covenant. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. So you have power to inherit all things. You have power to create all things. He's the one whom, through whom he, God created the world. But then he says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why does the universe even still exist? Not just why was it created in the first place, but why does it still exist second by second? It's because of the word of power of Jesus, of the power of Jesus Christ. The reason that our lives keep ticking on is because because God upholds them with his strong hand. Moment by moment existence that creatures experience is an expression of the power of God. That's his providence. That's his working of providence in the world. Scripture also calls him the one who forms rain and wind, light and darkness, blessing and calamity. He's the one who does his will in the events of the world. Scripture calls him the one who kills and makes alive, who sows and destroys. And I think if we stand back here, we should be convicted about this. Because even in the moment-by-moment existence of the world, and every event that takes place in it, the power of God is put on display, but how little do we think about that? How often, am, how often am I bored? This, I think this should give us reason to never be bored again. When you realize that, he, that God, the God of the universe, the God who has come to you in Jesus Christ, is constantly displaying His power in every single second of your life. Even in the Most mundane and ordinary moments, your entire being in existence is upheld by his strong right hand. That gives you reason to rejoice on Tuesday afternoon when you're at work and bored out of your mind. That gives you a reason to contemplate the glory of God second by second. You say, this moment right now is an expression of the eternal power of the Creator. So he displays his power in his works of creation and providence. But let's not forget the greatest of all God's displays of power, the work of redemption in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, because Isaiah paints this beautiful picture of God's power, even in the work of the suffering servant who was despised and rejected by men. Scripture often talks about creation and the power of God as the work of God's finger, the works of God's hands. But look at how Isaiah describes this work of redemption that's going to be carried out by the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Did you catch that? Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The powerful outstretched arm of Yahweh to redeem his people that he's promising to redeem in this text. And how is he redeeming them? How is he expressing his strong right arm? One from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. What is the ultimate display of God's power? It's the crushing of his son. The ultimate display of God's power that Isaiah is looking forward to is that act by which Jesus will redeem all those whom the Father has given to him by becoming, by taking on flesh and becoming a man and being despised and rejection, rejected, bruised, beaten, and crucified. This act that seems like the pinnacle of human weakness, God overturns the wisdom of men by allowing a piece of wood outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to be the means of salvation for an innumerable number of God's elect. That's the power of God. That's the power and the wisdom of God displayed chiefly in the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's not surprising then that Paul, that Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses... 20 through 25. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach what? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are the called, called by God, drawn in by Jesus' cross work, to those who are the called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is also the prism through which we will see the power of God and delight in it for all of eternity. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I'll give you a second to get there. Revelation chapter 5. I think that we see the ultimacy of God's power through the work of Jesus Christ, through his humiliation, even in a couple of these songs of the redeemed in eternity. Revelation chapter 5, starting in uh, verse 9, all of creation is singing a song how the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain and risen, is worthy to inherit the redeemed world. They say, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and around the throne the four living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive what? To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This worthiness to receive power or to have power ascribed to him is being offered to who? To the slain lamb. This is the ultimate expression of God's power that you as a believer will delight in for all eternity. It's the slain and risen lamb. It's, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's his humiliation by which he, God demonstrates his power for all eternity. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. God the Creator, God the Redeemer. This is the totality of the expression of His power in Scripture. So I hope that that helps give you just a little bit of a biblical picture of the omnipotence of God. But, even after we've seen how Scripture boasts of God's power... We still, have to, we still have to answer the question, how do we define it? Because you still haven't dealt with that problem. Are there some things that God can do? Are there some things that God cannot do? And how do you reconcile God as the all-powerful one if there are some things that he cannot do? Because like I said, the skeptic will come and say, okay, I've heard all your Bible verses. I've heard everything that you've said from God's word. But if... God is really as omnipotent as scripture says he is, then can he sin? Can he make a rock so big that he cannot move it? Can he make a square circle? Can he make a past event as if it never happened? Can he die? Can he make himself go out of existence? And this is not just a modern issue that people deal with either. I told you that I first kind of ran into this question about nine years ago when I was a freshman in college. But this is actually uh, a question that theologians have been wrestling with for centuries and have had all sorts of different answers to, some good and some really bad. So let's look at a couple of bad answers to this challenge. The first bad answer to this challenge is the answer that agrees with the premise of the challenge. This person takes the challenge and says, yes, God is omnipotent, so he must be able to do these things. Yes, God is omnipotent, so he must be able to make a square circle, which is a logical contradiction. Or he must be able to make a rock so big that he cannot move it, therefore nullifying his own power. He must be able to do these things because the Bible says that he can do all things. So the answer from these folks is essentially that God's absolute power is essentially powerful enough to upend his own power. To deny his own nature. That's their answer. Yes, God is omnipotent, so omnipotent that he can actualize contradictions, deny his own nature by sinning, dying, and making a rock so big that he can't move it. But the problem was with this is that you've reduced your own position to absurdity when you grant their premise. You've created a God. When you say yes to that person, yes, God could do those things, You've created a God who might not be God under the right conditions. You've created a God who could deny himself. Then there's the other set of bad answers to this question. One that strips God of his power altogether. It denies his omnipotence altogether. This position says that all that God has done in the world and in creation and redemption is all that he could do. So even as vast as God's display of power is in creation and in redemption and in providence, this position says all that God has done is all that, is all that he could do. Essentially, they say that God has exhausted his power in the things that he's done. But that doesn't really make sense either. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Because John the Baptist gives us a statement here that kind of shatters that position to pieces and shows that God is able to do far more than he has done if he willed to do it. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is coming into conflict with the Pharisees who call themselves sons of Abraham, declaring that the promises of God are them just by virtue of their belonging to the family of Abraham, starting in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, did God raise up children for Abraham from those stones specifically? No, he did not. So this is proof that God is able, if he decreed to, do far more than he has actually done. But he didn't will to accomplish those things. So that position is absurd too. So you can fall off the road in either direction. And this is how a lot of studying the attributes of God is, you can go too far in one direction or another and become incredibly speculative. But these are two really pretty dangerous errors. One says that God would not, might not be God under the right circumstances. The other one denies his power. But both of these errors have the same flawed foundation. That's how a lot of errors in the Christian faith are. They they boil down to a lot of the same few issues. Both of these errors have the same flawed foundation. They divorce God's power from the rest of God's being. What was the second or third message that I delivered in this series about? It was kind of a strange attribute that we talked about. It's God's simplicity. This truth that we saw from the burning bush and er, God's declaration of his name to Moses, that God just is who he is. He's not made up of parts. So the power of God can't be divorced from the rest of the being of God in order to be turned against God to do something that his will would not desire. That's Both of these errors on either side of the road make that same mistake that they don't see God in the first place as the self-existent, simple God that he is, the God who just is who he is. They divorce his power from the rest of his being, and it causes all of these problems. But the Bible doesn't do that. And this is where we're landing for a little bit. I know we've been flipping around, but turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm chapter 115. The psalmist is extolling the glory of Yahweh here against the idols of silver and gold. And he's extolling the glory of Yahweh specifically as he's asking Yahweh to vindicate his name and to save his people. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? So why should the nations be able to challenge you? Why should the nations be able to say the God of Israel is no God at all? So the psalmist is acting God to, or asking God to act But the psalmist answers, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Stop there for a second. That seems like a really, really simple statement. But there is loads of meaning packed into that phrase. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And we see here that the psalmist doesn't make the mistake of divorcing God's power from his will. What does God do? He does all that he pleases to do. So everything that is in accordance with his nature, there's nothing beyond the bounds of his ability to do it if he should will to do it. This means that God acts according to his nature. If anything is according to his nature, he is able to do that thing. But guess what's not according to God's nature? It is not according to God's nature to lie. It is not according to God's nature to stop being God. It is not according to God's nature to actualize a logical contradiction like making a square circle because God is the one who is simply truth. So the psalmist here connects the power of God to act, And to affect change in the world and his creation. He connects that to the rest of his attributes. And we see that in verse 1 too. Even though we might not think that we see it right away. The psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. What is the first reason that God does anything that he does in the world? What is God's ultimate end in creating all things and redeeming us? God's ultimate end is his own glory. So the psalmist is saying, act in accordance with that final end. Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of what? For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. These are two more attributes of God. God's steadfast love is that love by which he has covenanted to Israel to be their God and they will be his people by which he tells Israel, I will fulfill all of my promises to you. So he's saying, act in your power, vindicate your name, vindicate your people with a marvelous display of your power, but do it in accordance with your steadfast love and your faithfulness to your people. So there's all kinds of attributes included in that. What what other attributes does faithfulness include? It includes his truthfulness, his honesty, his inability to lie. It includes his love. It includes his faithfulness, includes his justice, even. The psalmist is saying, act, give us a display of your omnipotence as you vindicate your people, but do it in accordance with who you are. So if we're going to back up and we're going to see the Bible's definition of God's omnipotence, then all of the other attributes that we've already looked at are reinforced by this one. The omnipotence of God is the power by which he is able to do whatever he may will to do in accordance with the infinite perfection of his being. The omnipotence of God is that power by which he is able to do whatever he wants to do in accordance with the infinite perfection of his being. But this also flows into his other perfections that we've already looked at. Excuse me. Think about, for a second, God's independence or his aseity. That attribute that we looked at when we were starting this series out, saying that he is the self-existent one, the one who depends on nothing and no one else for his existence or his attributes to do anything he does or be who he is. He's totally independent of his creatures. It is not weakness that God... The independent and self-existent one cannot deny himself and become dependent. That is his strength that he is able to not do that. It is not weakness that the one with the power of infinite life cannot deny himself and die. That is his strength that he is not able to do that thing. It is not weakness that the simple God, whose power is his knowledge, whose power is his will, whose power is his love, whose power is his very existence and being, cannot deny himself by actualizing a contradiction or doing any other thing that denies his being. The fact that he cannot do those things is his strength. It is not weakness that the unbounded God cannot limit himself to time and space. That is his strength. So the fact that God cannot do some of these things is an attribute of his omnipotence. It's not an attribute of impotence. The fact that there are things that God cannot do does not detract from his omnipotence. It bolsters it. It should give you confidence In the omnipotence of God, that there are some things that He cannot do. Because the omnipotence of God, seen in this light, is essentially saying that He is so strong and so powerful that He could never have an iota of weakness that creatures have. And because that is the central, one of the central realities of who God is, His people can trust His promises. And that's also. In this psalm, in Psalm 115, Psalm 115 is meant to bolster God's covenant people's confidence in His promises. Notice how the psalmist applies this truth in verses 9 through 11. What's his declaration? after considering that God is not like the idols. He does whatever he pleases. Though all those idols are silver and gold, they are the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So all of these idols are dumb and they cannot act to save you because our God is the only true God who is omnipotent in power. But what is the psalmist's application of this principle to the sons of Israel. O Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and and great. So what is the psalmist's application of this truth that God is omnipotent and is able to do whatever he pleases? His people should have unbreakable trust in his power to keep his promises. This is true, just as true for us as it was for the original people to whom this was written. The only reason you will wake up trusting in Jesus Christ tomorrow is because you are being sustained in your faith by the omnipotent power of God. The only reason that you will make it to heaven if you are in Christ is because of the omnipotent, sovereign upholding of your faith by the mighty hand of God. So that just comes to mind. Turn with me to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Peter illustrates this for us. And not only that, but he illustrates our reward that God will give us as He sustains us by His power as well. First Peter chapter one. Peter talks about the fact that we've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to inheritance, to an inheritance waiting for us that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But how are we sustained until we reach that inheritance? How are we sustained until we see Christ face to face and we inherit the glory of God and the glory of the new heavens and the new earth to Him? How can I know that God will keep His promises to me and that the hand of Christ won't lose me and that His Father's hand, which is clasped around that, won't lose me as well? This is how you know. You've been born again to an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by what? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be, to be revealed in the last time. It's almost like Peter is saying the same thing that the psalmist was saying in chapter 114. He is is our help. He is our shield. The Lord himself is the one who sustains your faith. The Lord himself is the one who causes you to persevere through all the trials and tribulations until you reach your final inheritance. So what's the final application here? The final application is trust in Christ because he's able to do everything that he's promised you that he will do for you. He's able to bring you home because he's the omnipotent God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. This is not... We thank you that this is not a truth that we can just um, swallow lightly and walk away from here and not think about anymore, but it's a truth that beckons us to worship you every hour of every day. The fact that you are the God who is so great in power that you are able to do far above all that we ask or think and you're the God who keeps all of your promises to us in Christ Jesus because your promises in him are yes and amen and you have the power to fulfill them and no one can stand in your way. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what a wonderful, beautiful Savior he is. We thank you that every one of these glories that you possess is revealed to us in him. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, if you'd uh, stand with me and turn with me in hymns of grace to number 26, I sing the mighty power of God. Hymns of grace, number 26. We'll be back here at 145 for our second service as we uh, continue worshiping the Lord together. You're dismissed.